Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and the moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, May 16, 2021. The sheer ID numbers for Friday, May 14th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,945, that's 16945. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,946, that's 16946. This morning, A Vision for You presents Getting Food Sober with Entire Abstinence. The doctor's opinion is the foundation of the whole book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and of the entire program. This section may simply seem to be a helpful introductory note, but without it, the entire book doesn't make sense. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth, the doctor who wrote the two letters found in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Put simply, we have an allergy of the body, which means that once we start eating certain kinds of foods or indulging in certain substances or perhaps in certain compulsive eating behaviors, we develop cravings which overpower us. And we have a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us, hijacks us, that we can return to eating those foods all over again and again and again and again. Hence the urgency and the necessity of the 12-step process. An essential part of the very beginning of the recovery process is the separation from our binge foods and being honest about both past and present binge foods and eating behaviors. Dr. Silkworth states, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. We in Overeaters Anonymous, must do the same. We have to stop our craving. And the only way to stop the craving is to stop eating foods that cause our cravings. We must be as sober with food as an alcoholic is with alcohol. Let me say that again. We must be as sober with food as an alcoholic is with alcohol. There can be no compromises, no middle ground. Otherwise, the phenomenon of craving is triggered and we are condemned. We have to stop our craving, and the only way to stop the craving is to stop eating foods that cause our cravings. We also have to stop the eating behaviors that cause 
our cravings. The doctor's opinion refers to this as entire abstinence. So the big question is, how do we go about it? Yes, it's easier for an alcoholic to identify the substance that causes the allergy. For the alcoholic, the substance that triggers the phenomenon of craving is alcohol in any form. But for the compulsive eater, we can differ in the kinds of substances that cause cravings. Joining us today are three recovered compulsive eaters who will share their personal experience regarding getting food sober with entire abstinence. On our panel this morning, we have Allison L. from Ohio, Jason K. from Pennsylvania, and Melissa C. from New York. So let's get started right now with panelist number one, Allison L. Good morning, Allison. Good morning, Leah, and thank you for your introduction. As always, it was divinely inspired, and it really struck home with me. Um, I appreciate your service very much. Good morning, fellows. My name is Allison L. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I am from Ohio, recently relocated, and now living in South Carolina as of this past week. Um, I've been in OA for seven and a half years, and I've lived in a contented state of entire abstinence for the past four and a half years. I'm here today. I have great gratitude to share with you my experience, strength, and hope, and it's miraculous to me that I have any to share. There was a time when I was in the depths of despair, sitting on my couch, living to eat, and didn't know if it was possible for this program to work for me. I doubted whether I had it in me to withstand the withdrawals and the pain of feeling all of life that comes with entire abstinence or to do that long enough for the steps to relieve me of my condition. So today I'll share with you some of my own experience and things that I have been taught and picked up along the way studying the big book from others. Um, it's necessary for me to keep things as basic and simple as possible. When my abstinence or recovery seem complicated or impossible to understand, then my disease has me in its grips. Uh, when I can accept what I have to do in its simplicity, then I can move forward and accept that while it's not easy, it's not pain-free, it is also not complicated. So today we're focusing on how to be entirely abstinent, and this comes from the doctor's opinion, as Leah said, page XXX. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Okay, great. So relief from what exactly? I cannot work the solution if I don't know, identify with, and truly believe that I have the malady that needs solved. So entire abstinence relieves me from what is referred to as an allergy by Dr. Silkworth. The step work is what keeps me sane and free from the obsession of the mind so I can remain abstinent one day at a time. And I had to work these steps in entire abstinence to bring about the spiritual awakening, which relieved me of the obsession of the mind. And I have to keep working them in entire abstinence to grow my spiritual awakening and keep myself in reliance on that power greater than myself. I'm going to focus mainly on the allergy of the body in my talk. Uh, my part here today, some quotes from the doctor's opinion that discuss this allergy. I'm just going to read through them. Um, the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. 
our bodies were sickened as well. Any picture of the alcoholic that leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Those are all from at page XXVI. The next set of quotes. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. Those are from page XXIX. And the last quote, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Again, page XXX. So for me and my experience, what all those quotes are saying to me is that when I put certain substances into my body, I have a physical reaction. My body reacts abnormally to those particular substances. Once ingested, my body reacts with a physical, biological, overwhelming, uncontrollable response to crave more. When abstinence seemed overwhelming and complicated and at times impossible to me, it was because I wanted to give up as little as possible and consider myself abstinent. Uh, the problem with that for me is that my body's allergy cannot be overcome by my ideas or my mental gymnastics about how I want to qualify foods. My work to be entirely abstinent is to be completely honest with myself, my sponsor, and my nutritionist about what those substances are and be willing to not ingest them in any way, shape, or form. Looking at my own eating history, I can see that I need to abstain from sugars, sweeteners, real or artificial, alcoholic with alcohol, which I've been taught converts to sugar in my body, chips, crackers, fried foods, breads and wraps, nut butters, dried fruits, and, and a few other things, caffeine, hummus, um, those are the ones that come to mind. I don't share those because anyone else needs to abstain from the exact same foods as me. I share them because it was helpful for me to hear what others abstained from, to know that I wasn't doing um, this alone, that I wasn't um, crazy to have to give up these things, that others were doing it too. So knowing what I do not eat is essential to be entirely abstinent but, I, abstinent, but I also need to know how to eat in a way that is abstinent. The tool of a food plan is crucial for me. My food plan is it's a prescription. I take it daily as prescribed for my illness. It identifies when I will eat, how much I will eat, and then day by day I fill in the blanks with foods that do not trigger my allergic response. My food plan came from a nutritionist who understands that I'm a compulsive overeater and must abstain from entire groups of food. I stay in touch with her as needed. I also commit my food to a sponsor daily. I don't take liberties with my food by changing it on a whim or picking up some abstinent food whenever I feel like it. I eat my meals within reasonable time frames, and this keeps me from the slippery slope of overeating abstinent food. The OA definition of abstinence is the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. So my food plan must be one that keeps me at a healthy body weight agreed upon by medical professionals of some sort and not one of my own creation. And overeating any food, even vegetables, would mean that I'm not abstinent. 
I do not want any food behaviors or decisions around them to take up precious space in my mind today. Um, a Sunday special edition podcast that helped me sort out specific foods was from May 4th. Oops, sorry. Uh, it was called May 4th, 2014, called What Do We Mean by Entire Abstinence? From that and from studying the big book with other compulsive overeaters, hearing their shares, and studying other podcasts, I was uh, I'm able to reflect on my own history with my own eating and behaviors and determine what entire abstinence is for my body. And I want to share an experience I had in entire abstinence that for me really displays how cunning, baffling, and powerful the allergy to food can be. Um, this experience happened while I was entirely absent, living in recovery. I had been in recovery for one to two years when I had this experience. So very subtly, um, I began to notice there was trail mix in our pantry. It had dried fruit in it, not something I don't eat. And I didn't crave it, and I didn't even think about it, other than being very aware of it when I would open the pantry. It was very, very subtle. Like I'd open the pantry and be like, oh, look, there's trail mix. But then that was, that was it. So I reviewed my food. I reviewed, you know, I'd been doing 10 steps, 11 steps. My, my, um, my program life was, you know, I was working it day by day. Um, there wasn't anything lingering. So in reviewing my food, I had to remain willing at any time, um, and I still do at any lengths, for, to, go, to go to any lengths for recovery from my disease. And that means being willing to let go of any food or behavior at any time um, that it might begin to be a problem for me. So in reviewing what I had been eating, I was drawn to the fact that I had been eating balsamic vinegar. Um, I'd been putting it on my salads, and I'd been committing it. I'd eaten it in recovery from time to time, but for some reason I sensed that um, this particular time it was an issue. And I did not want to tell anyone. But I was terrified of the not wanting to tell anyone because I knew that meant that it was a problem. So I told. I told my sponsor and a fellow, and I immediately stopped eating that. Um, and the heightened awareness of the trail mix dissipated. And I'm not telling the story because I think everyone has to abstain from balsamic vinegar. That's not the point. I'm giving an example of how the allergy manifested for me because I wasn't craving more and more of the thing that was triggering me. My body did not decipher that what it wanted was what triggered it. Um, it was simply beginning to be drawn to something that would satisfy the craving that had begun to be stirred biologically inside of me. Um, I also abstain from behaviors that create the phenomenon of craving inside of me. I don't eat while watching TV because that causes me to seek more and more. I also don't eat outside of my food plan and I don't eat, um, without, I don't eat foods without weighing and measuring them. Uh, the last thing that I uh, want to share is, um, maybe I have two more things to share, <laughs> that uh, my disease is progressing over time. I know that. We're taught that, and I've experienced that. So inside of me, it's progressing. And even while I'm living in a state of recovered abstinence, it's there growing. And to match that uh, growth, my willingness to go to any lengths must also grow. My spiritual life and relationship with my higher power must increase, and my willingness to admit that my body is becoming more sensitive uh, must also, I must be open to that. The allergy will always be alive within me, uh, in my body, and my experience is that it becomes more sensitive. So like with the example I gave of the vinegar, um, I must remain willing to let go of any food or behavior as soon as I have awareness that might be taking up space for me in my mind. Um, 
and I'll share, you know, that the way that it kind of progressed is I didn't always weigh and measure all the foods I ate. I didn't always commit my food daily in the very beginning um, when I was working the steps in abstinence. And I didn't always call someone to make changes to my food. But as I journey in recovery, I want to continue matching the disease progression. And I could sense um, over time that I needed to begin doing these things or I could gradually begin to lose what I have. So I now call a sponsor daily. I commit it daily. I weigh and measure. I call about changes. Um, and this all allows me to, to free my mind and um, live my life. Um, I keep working the steps around what is current in my life. Um, how can I rely more today on my higher power than I did yesterday? How can I best serve my divine purpose in this life? Um, that's my work today, and it's a beautiful way to live. And um, this will be the last thing I just want to share, you know, um, I know when I would hear these things early in my recovery or when I was coming out of, of relapse, um, it seemed very um, like a lot. Like, how can I do these things? How can I not eat certain things? I have to live my life. And I just want to share that, that my situation today is that I'm living in a hotel with my husband and three boys and a dog. Uh, we moved um, very far away. We had a house lined up. And when we were on our way here, we found out it wasn't going to happen. So we had to figure out um, long-term, a place to stay longer than we thought. We had to start house hunting again in this crazy market. Um, and, and living in this hotel room, I'm abstinent. I'm weighing and measuring. I'm making all my calls um, as I normally would to my sponsor, sponsee, fellows. I'm being of service. Um, I'm serving my family. And None of the things going on in my life are, are reasons that I would eat. I trust and rely that God's taking care of us, and that continues to be true. So I just wanted to share that as, um, as an experience I'm currently going through that um, in no way, shape, or form um, holds me back from eating the way that I need to eat and doing the things that I need to do to take care of myself um, and to live in recovery. So with that, I will go ahead and pass. I look forward to hearing the other panelists. Thank you. Thank you so much, Allison, for sharing your experience with such great clarity. Thank you. Next up, panelist number two, Jason Kay from Pennsylvania. Good morning, Leah, and good morning, uh, Vision for You. Uh, this is Jason Kay, Recovered Compulsive Eater from Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia here. Of course, I had a timer set up to run, and it, my Fitbit said it wanted to do something else, so starting my timer. Um, yeah, I'm grateful to be here and talk about this topic, uh, and I just wanted to give sort of a sketch, an overview of my history and, and my process in becoming food sober and entirely abstinent. You know, for me, I started into this program as a 20-year-old. I came in to the the uh, rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. I'm I'm now 40. So 20 years ago, I, I walked into these rooms confused and baffled and um, knowing that I had this very strange uh, relationship with food, I was uncomfortable with it. I was uncomfortable with how much I ate. I'd make myself vomit at times due to overeating and I was trying to figure it all out. I, at that time, did not hear a strong message of recovery that I can remember. I did not hear about this allergy of the body phenomenon or concept, and I did not study the big book, and I was thoroughly confused and baffled about what food sobriety meant and what abstinent 
um, being abstinent meant. And I, I struggled in and out of the program, uh, going to meetings and fellowship for, for years. And the gradual progression of, progression of my disease just took over. Things became more severe, more pronounced, uh, more weight gain, more compulsive eating, less periods of control. Um, I was sort of circling the drain. And I got to a point where I became willing to come back to, to Overeaters Anonymous in my 30s and, and do it in a bit of a serious way. And there were times when I did that, uh, giving up certain foods, but not all substances. So there was times when I was counting calories, when I was uh, committing to a food plan and to a sponsor, but not really willing to give up certain foods. And I was doing lookalike foods, things like, well, it's bread, but it's sprouted bread, and it's bread with different types of flour. And, and, and honestly, that just never worked for me. I wasn't really entirely willing to give up all the foods that I needed to give up. And I couldn't find any peace and serenity, you know, in that process. And then finally, I met a sponsor who took me on and he said, only if you're willing to give up flour and sugar. And I said, okay. But I didn't really understand why, the, the, the concept of why I was giving up those foods. And I was doing it on his terms and his food plan, and I was not working the steps. And so although I did have a certain amount of clean abstinence, I didn't necessarily have any peace of mind and any um, serenity. And I was worshiping the food plan. I was uh, a, a guy I was working with on uh, Vision for You was calling me Mr. Food Plan because I was so precise and I was so obsessed with my food plan. Uh, I, I just needed to have that control. And then finally, three and a half years, uh, ago, I, I fully surrendered, and I said, I, I have to be abstinent, and I, I can't keep on living like this, and I have uh, a little bit more than three and a half years of recovery. And um, for me, I had to be willing to go to any lengths, and this first step really, really drives all my decision-making in, uh, in my abstinence, what stays on my list, what goes off of my list. I've, in, I've deeply, deeply internalized this process. I had to use outside help to get clear about what I could and could not eat. I had a, a revelation in my food plan around the concept of enough. I had constantly and consistently, day in and day out, tried to eat less, to lose weight, and I constantly and consistently um, cycled into a binge, uh, binge uh, cycle. When I went to a nutritionist and she gave me uh, weighed and measured amounts of food, it was a revelation. It seemed like I was eating way too much, I was never hungry, and I was losing weight consistently. I think it's very, very important to talk to outside help and to get an outsider's perspective on uh, what you would need to eat uh, in terms of amounts and varieties, because when in my skewed thinking, I can never quite get it right. And, and if I was going to write that food plan, it would have been way different than what she wrote it. Um, so it's just a huge, huge benefit uh, for, for that uh, outside help. For people that can look at us objectively, that have gone to college, that have studied things, I played around with things like eating certain ingredients in like the fifth or sixth, uh, if they were the fifth or sixth ingredient. That doesn't work for me. Uh, I found out in the end, I can't mess around with food and you tell me to put something in the fifth and sixth ingredient and I'm going to make a fruit salad with six different types of fruit 
and I'm going to pile maple syrup and, and, and other junk onto it because that's just who I am. Um, so for me, I had to understand clearly the phenomenon of craving and what it was. This is what I think Dr. Silkworth gives us that is unique and especially um, distinct in his uh, presentation because he does talk about these entire psychic changes and you know talks about moral psychology and, and the power of God. But what he does tell us that is significant is that any picture of the alcoholic that does not include this physical component is, is incomplete. It is lacking. It is missing. So when I think of the doctor's opinion, I think of Dr. Silkworth is a physician, and he's talking about the physical body. I believe what Dr. Silkworth says is when I ingest certain ingredients and certain foods, that I have a physical reaction that is different, that is distinct, that is abnormal. I define the allergy of the body as a, an adverse, abnormal reaction to a substance, a, a physical reaction. And for me, I learn a lot by contrast, right? And, and people use this idea of craving, uh, and, and our allergy is, is characterized by this phenomenon of craving, but we're not using craving in the typical sense of the word. You know, I asked a friend of mine uh, who had this gastric bypass stuff, and I said, well, what do you do when you get a craving? She says, well, I go buy that food. And I said, really? And then what happens? She says, then I eat that food. And she's looking at me like I'm a weirdo, like raising her eyebrows, like, what are you talking about, Jason? And I said, well, what happens when you eat the food? She's like, the craving goes away. My jaw, I think, dropped a little bit, and I had to look at my own experience. And I think looking at our own experience is super, super powerful when we, we look at defining our own abstinence because we know throughout our eating history, our compulsive eating history, there are things that we go to consistently that give us this deep, powerful uh, effect that, that we love. For me, I loved the effect of certain foods, and yet when I ate those foods, it was characterized by this phenomenon of craving. So I start eating the ice cream, the donuts, the, the cookies, the pastries, the candies, and I want more. Not only do I want more, I can't stop myself from eating more. Normal people, when they eat this, they feel satiated and they feel like they've had enough. They stop eating. For me, I keep eating more and more and more, even as I'm physically getting sick, physically hurting, my stomach is hurting, I'm feeling bloated and full, I keep putting these foods in my mouth, and I'm absolutely 100% disgusted with myself, and yet I keep putting those foods in my mouth at the same time saying, this is crazy, I should stop eating this. And I put that food down and I say, finally put that food down, and maybe I vomit, maybe I'm disgusted with myself, maybe I try to go asleep and check out, but then already some part of me in my mind is thinking, when can I do that again? When can I get that food again? And sometimes with those foods, it's the very first bite that I'm taking. I'm thinking, oh, this is amazing. When's the next time I can get this? Uh, that for me is that phenomenon of craving uh, that's, that's clicking in. And again, we have to understand we're not talking about craving in the way that, Dr. Silk, uh, that, that normal people talk about craving. Dr. Silkworth says that the phenomenon of craving has driven some men to make the ultimate sacrifice rather than to continue on. Meaning, what I take that to mean is people have committed suicides, they've given up, 
because they cannot combat this 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 uh, craving, the the power of this craving. We are truly, truly powerless over this craving. It is a ph- phenomenon that hijacks our, our our body and our brain so that we cannot resist its calls. Now, when we internalize this, when I internalize this, uh, internalize this, uh, I, I I stand upon this as the truth of my life. I make a list about the foods that I cannot eat safely, that I'm committed to as a hard red line, that I don't eat those foods. And if I do, I'm not abstinent. And, uh, you know, for me, some people say, you know, do a cheat meal. Cheat meal, a cheat meal for me turns into cheat months. Uh, You know, I can't afford a cheat meal. And uh, it's just based, and again, this is a physical phenomenon. It's not something that is up for debate per se, we're, we're, we're discussing and, and sort of looking at and asking ourselves, is this true based on my experience? Do I have foods that once I start eating, this phenomenon of craving overtakes me? It becomes paramount above all else. It's the only thing that we can think about, the only thing we can, um, the only thing we can, can do. And when I'd had periods of, of abstinence and abstaining from this foods, and I'd go back into them, I mean, it would be months. I'd be gaining back, you know, 20 pounds that I had lost in abstinence, and I'd just be vomiting at a higher rate than I'd ever been vomiting in my bulimia. It's just insanity. And I think when we, 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 we understand that insanity, when we see it clearly, you know, there's part of us, like, for me, I know this was what was killing me. This is the, the core of my problem. I'm powerless over this foods. You know, I start eating, you know, the ice cream, and then I'm going to the local store, and, uh, and each day I'm grabbing those pints, and I'm leaning on my tippy toes, and I'm going all the way back into that freezer cabinet, and I'm aware that they haven't gotten a delivery of ice cream recently, and 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 I'll go all the way to the back, and then I'll have to choose a different uh, a different flavor. It for me, it's insanity. And sometimes there's a debate among people where we talk about, do I have to give certain things up? For me, in the core of my uh, gut, I know it's absolute insanity to even consider and fathom trying to eat these foods in, in any sane way. And, and you know, there's, there's certain outliers, things that, are on my, that aren't on my food list, and people will say, you know, my sister said to me once, she says, I'm, I can make you ice cream, it's 100% out of fruit, and I do it in a food processor, food processor and, 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 and immediately before she finished a sentence, I'm like, I can't eat that. There's no way I would eat that sanely and safely. And thank God today, I'm restored to sanity due to working the steps and having had a spiritual awakening. That's a hard no for me. That wasn't even uh, an option and a thought. That's not written down on my abstinence list, but I know in my gut, in my heart, that's absolutely not, uh, that's not a part of who I am and, and anything that I can do. Um, the other thing for me is I had to kind of, uh, and I have a couple minutes left and I'll sort of wrap up and try to summarize. I had to look at um, abstinence for myself. I hear people saying, I can't eat this and you shouldn't eat that and you shouldn't eat that. And I started to sort of take on some things that were other people's uh, abstinence. So for instance, some people would say licking a spoon is problematic for them. That does not stimulate a phenomenon in, of craving uh, in me. It's not part of my abstinence. When I scoop out um, certain things into my, 
you know, weighed and measured things. I will lick the spoon because it's easier to clean when it's done. I've never, ever, ever, ever thought I could keep licking these spoons. I never thought about the next spoon I could lick. So when I work with sponsees, I have to ask them that question. Does this certain behavior or certain food stimulate a phenomenon of craving? Has it in the past, if they've had experience with abstinence, been a gateway into losing your abstinence? Um, you know, for me, abstinence can be too rigid. You know, if I say raw veggies, um, it doesn't matter if it's carrots or broccoli. I don't like eating either of them, but I eat them, <laughs> you know, because that's part of a healthy way of living, right? I can't, if I overeat raw veggies, it's not stimulating a phenomenon of craving. It's stimulating a phenomenon of, oh, God, I've had enough. That's the same response. Raw veggies aren't an alcoholic food for me, and I like to use this term, alcoholic foods are to me what alcohol is to the alcoholic. So I have certain foods that are absolutely not alcoholic. I can eat those with sanity uh, and, and, um, and not stimulate any phenomenon of craving. And for me, I can get really rigid and perfectionistic, and I was thinking about I would take this fish oil that tasted kind of sweet. I'm researching, why is this sweet? Is it this thing called glycerin? And I'm, I'm trying to think about my chemistry degrees, and I'm looking at molecules on, on Google, and I can't seem to get a clear answer. And I had to stop myself. I said, Jason, have you ever taken your fish oil and thought about when's the next fish oil serving you can take? Have I ever doubled up my fish oil dose in a day? It, no, absolutely not, 100% no. That is just not something I do or have done. And I had to sort of let that stuff go. And I had to find a sanity inside myself to ask myself honestly, which, which substances, which behaviors actually stimulate this phenomenon of craving. And, and it's all right there in our history. We, we, we know, I think we know, at least I knew, and it took, and what I did, and I'll finish up here in a second, what I did is I wrote down a food history so I could see it in black and white. That was helpful to me um, to see it. And I could clearly see the patterns. I could clearly see the foods that I went to time and time again. Um, so, so Dr. Silkworth says, we must believe our body is quite as abnormal as our mind. And that's what I believe. And knowing this has been the springboard to, to, to choosing a sane and sound food plan and definition of abstinence that's worked for me. And with that, I'll pass. I'm looking forward to Melissa C. Thank you, Jason, for sharing your experience and personal insights with all of us. Yes, now let's welcome Melissa C. from New York. Good morning. Hey. Can you hear me? I hear you. Okay, great. Good morning. Thank you so much. I'm going to start my timer too. Um, yeah, first of all, it was awesome um, listening to the other two panelists and, you know, my head is nodding like, yep, yep, yep. And I'm crossing out <laughs> some of what I was going to say. That's sort of the benefit of going last um, because, yeah, there's a lot of repetition here. But um, so anyway, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. Um, and you know, I uh, well. First of all, the doctor's opinion. Um, it is um, so important for us to understand 
And I'm going to sort of jump around a little bit. I want to start off with um, on XXVIII, it talks about frothy emotional appeal, and that seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they're to recreate their lives. So what I love about this line and what um, we've all been hearing this morning, and hopefully I'll do as well, I'm not going to appeal to anybody from an emotional perspective. I'm not going to be here full of frothy emotions because, like, I've had a lifetime worth of frothy emotional appeals where people would sit me down and give me a good talking to, generally out of love, right? Sometimes out of, like, you know, uh, you know, doctors would be, like, trying to scare me. Like, uh, you know, you're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. Um, you have to stop eating that. And, um, you know, actually what I hope to do today is not tell anybody that they're killing themselves, but to share the fact that um, I was killing myself, right, and that hopefully my message has depth and weight, which is, of course, we need to be entirely abstinent. We must have food sobriety. But the main message is that my ideals, my values, my principles, my standards, you know, they're today, they're grounded in a relationship with the divine, and that this program is all about recreating our lives, which for people like me is impossible so long as I'm eating. I cannot recreate my life while I'm eating alcoholic foods. It just doesn't work like that. So, um, you know, on XXVI, it says that we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane. We favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged. And more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. And, you know, like I mentioned this because helping someone define entire abstinence, this is part of that hospitalization period. You know, they say we favor hospitalization, right? This, helping people define what abstinence is, you know, is part of giving someone that initial care, And when you're put in a hospital, you're cared for and you're supported. And I say, like, all outside distractions are minimized and removed. And if you're struggling today, you know, hopefully you can see this as part of your hospitalization um, procedure. Um, You know, and then the letter, like, I love when the letter starts out, this, this, to whom it may concern. And I say, like, okay, if we're all here together, why don't you just write your name there? Like, in my book, it says, Dear Melissa, because I'm the one that this letter concerns, and I have to read it like that position. Like this, yes, it's a text, but it's a text that was written precisely for a woman like me. Um, And XXVI, it says, We who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. We are sure, goes on to say, that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So, right, my body is abnormal. 
And if I don't understand that and accept that, then I am neglecting crucial information. And and truthfully, if I'm sharing anything different with you, then I'm giving out incomplete information. And my experience was that there were lots of people in Overeaters Anonymous, well-meaning, but they didn't want to scare me away, right? So they didn't drive this point home. They gave me a lot of love and comfort, which is awesome. We're supposed to love and comfort one another, but we have to do it with clarity, with the right information. And, you know, I'm not an allergy specialist. I don't have the results of anyone's blood work. I don't even have the results of my own blood work. But I know that this explanation, it's the only one that makes sense. You know, I have never, ever, ever in my life been able to eat two cookies and have it quiet. As a very little girl, my experience with food was always longing for more. Like my earliest memories are all food-related, but they're not just enjoyable food-related experiences. They're the longing for what I didn't get food experiences. And what I found is that I have a very severe response to certain foods, volumes, ingredients, and, yes, behaviors. And so to start getting food sober, it's to start with what's not food sober, right? Uh, Because I need to know what I can't have. And, you know, I was taught something, um, and you know, about that three-column list, right? And um, so you you make this three-column list, right? And there's the – whoops. Timer just oh there went okay sorry so <clears throat> there's this three column list and the red light you know the red yellow green and <clears throat> red light foods are the ones absolutely no I can't handle and for me there were things like cookies candies cakes muffins donuts ice cream soda chips fast food fried foods like we probably all have the same ones and those are really easy to name those are clear. And then there's the yellow ones, and these are the ones that I wasn't so sure about. And, you know, I'm going to, like, come back to that in a second, right? Then there's the green ones. And and for me, they tend to be just that. They're green, right? They're raw, generally raw green veggies and, and most fruits, right? They're things like fish, chicken, turkey, meats, eggs lower-fat foods, not fried or drenched in sauces and gravies. And what I really found out that for myself and and for many people that I've worked with is that food that doesn't have a label or a list of ingredients but just sort of comes in its own natural package um, is very often on a lot of people's green lists, you know, carrots, broccoli, spinach, right? These are foods I can eat and I can enjoy them. They don't roll around in my brain. I can like them, but I don't lie in bed at night thinking about sneaking downstairs and eating them. Like I've never raced home from school because I knew that my mom had, you know, a package of broccoli in the house. Um, and, And I think these are often the foods that if you would go to the doctor, if I went to the doctor and my doctor said, okay, you've got to stop eating that, I might think it was silly and unnecessary, but I wouldn't struggle to do it. 
you know. And so if I was told tomorrow that I had a broccoli allergy, and by the way, I really, really enjoy broccoli, um, I would not need to work the 12 steps in order to live free from eating broccoli. I would just stop eating it, right? But now, so let's circle back and discuss the yellow ones. And, and for me, those were the foods I wasn't sure of. And they were the sometimes problem foods. And what I found out is that where these are where the lookalikes go. And I loved that Jason and Allison both mentioned this. You know, and I'll clarify lookalikes. The baked chips, whether they're made from potatoes or veggies or anything, if it looks like a chip, it's a chip. You know, the diet version of the real thing, those were the foods I lived on. These are also the foods that, um, you know, that I knew were healthy, but I struggled to eat in reasonable quantities. And, you know, for me, those are certain starches and nuts. I found out any nuts, and lots of people can eat nuts without a problem. I can't. Um, High-fat foods go there. You know, yellow foods are also the recipes, the concoctions that turn abstinent foods into something that's really on my red light list. And so, you know, here's like an example. Um, I eat oatmeal. I, I enjoy it. I weigh it out. It's part of my breakfast. I can eat a banana, one banana. Again, I like it. It doesn't excite me. I don't want more. I can have eggs, also not a problem. But I know people who can take these three things, and if you're one of them and it's not a problem for you, awesome. But I found out if I take those three things and I combine them together and I bake them so that it becomes a loaf or a muffin or a pancake, I've just cooked a problem. I have now just recreated a recipe for a disaster. And something about those lookalikes that takes something from a food and it turns it into an event I can't engage in that kind of eating. Food sobriety for me means that food can be delicious, it can be flavorful, but it can't be an event. You know, I've got a good friend who makes pizza. She makes pizza crust from chicken and, and cauliflower, and I'm like, my gosh, that is super creative. Um, you know, um, that's great, but if I do that, I'd, I'd be dead, you know. Um, Yellow light foods are also the ones I really didn't want to let go of. That's why I put them on the yellow list. And what I say is, you know, now let's look at page XXVIII. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. So those were the foods that were giving me an effect. And that sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. So I can say that when I was living in the insanity of the food, I can't differentiate what's true from false. And my disease wants to experience, it's dying to experience that effect that I get, that hit. And I'm not just powerless to the allergic response when I eat my alcoholic foods. But I'm powerless to that lying voice inside me, the desire that owns me, and I can't tell what's true and what's a lie. You know, my disease would lie to me, and it's really skilled at lying. You know, and and why? Because the one that needs the convincing is the one that's doing the convincing. You know, it knows the right lie for every occasion. It's sugar-free. 
It's healthy. Other compulsive eaters can eat it, right? That one, like, go on a retreat with people and, and get a look and see what other compulsive overeaters can eat. And that, I'm like, oh, I start looking. But that's not, you know, that's not my business, what other people can eat. And so I say, like, anything on that yellow list, it's not yellow, it's red, right? There are no yellow light foods. They're all red. And and if that and what I say is if that pisses you off and you have a strong emotional response, like I did, I was mad that I put some things on a yellow, well, I just have to remember I didn't feel that way about the broccoli, right? And um, And I'm also sure that sanity will return. And what I found out was there's no food that I'm that interested in. I don't want to negotiate. Um, you know, I also, um, I have to weigh and measure, you know, my food, um, and I need abstinence, and I need, and I need a food plan. Um, on XXVIII, it says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class, and it never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So, yeah, we found out, right, average eaters can eat food and they experience satisfaction from normal-sized portions. You know, um, normal people eat, and with every bite, the desire for more gets diminished. And when I eat certain foods, the desire for more gets increased. And and it tells me that I can never treat food the way normal people can. You know, I loved when I heard that normal people um, experience food like I experience thirst, right? When I drink a glass of water, I don't need a 12-step program to keep me from finishing the glass once my thirst is quenched, right? And I don't need willpower. I don't need anything. I just need to put the glass down. Um, you know, I found out food sober means that I cannot eat recreationally, right? Food is not recreation. Food is nutrition. I don't eat in front of the TV. I don't eat sitting up. I sit down. I sit at a table, preferably for me in a chair with arms, because in my morbid obesity, I didn't fit in armchairs, and so I love to feel that boundary around me. I love a life with structure and boundary, and I love sitting in a a chair with arms. Um, I have a committed food plan. I write it down each day, and I write it down immediately after praying and meditating because I need God's intervention. And then I commit it to my sponsor, and I don't make changes unless it's mandatory, right? I don't at will because that, for me, is an alcoholic behavior. That's saying... I can manage and control. I got this. I know it's in my best interest, right? Um, you know, there's an XXVIII. It says that this phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And so the important thing is that we have, all of us have this one particular symptom in common. We cannot start drinking 
You know, I can't start eating without developing the phenomenon of craving and that this makes me different from other people. It sets me apart as a distinct entity. And that is the important concept I want to zone in on. This allergy cannot be permanently eradicated. So although we recover from the insanity, we do not recover from the allergy. What we have to do is abstain. I have to abstain. And so for me, it's very helpful to be really clear. I'm not like other people, right? I'm not like other girls, I say. I'm different. I'm different. I'm special. I'm unique. And so I cannot look at other people and things that they can do where eating and food are concerned. That's not where I look to find out how I need to eat and how I need to behave with food. And this for me is a very important sentence. And I say, like, fold a piece of paper in half. On one half of the paper is where all the rest of the world lives. They can eat spontaneously. They can eat fast foods. They can eat at friends' houses. They can be well-mannered and inoffensive by eating anything offered by their host, right? Not me. (laughs) I, I actually, I can't do that. They can also, by the way, those people can get really angry. They can tell white lies. They can gossip. They can get mad at their boss. They can hang on to a resentment at their parents or their mother-in-law. Um, but I have a very special, and I'll just finish up here. I have a very special type of disordered eating problem. It means that for the rest of my life, I must be vigilant about what I consume. I must be certain that I'm rigorously honest Yes, about my food, but about everything. (laughs) I have to be reliable. I can't gossip. I can't snack while watching TV. I have to eat in planned ways, and I have to live in agreement with my moral code. I'm here, right? I'm here on this line today because I required a miraculous intervention from the divine, from God. And for the rest of my life, right, as this is permanent, progressive, fatal, and also patient, I need to forever be seeking a relationship with the miraculous power, which I can't do if I'm eating, (laughs) meaning I no longer live my life according to the desires and whims of me. Entire abstinence and food sobriety, it's, yes, it's what I consume. Of course it's what I consume, but it's more than just what I consume. It's what consumes me. It's more than just what I put in my mouth. It's also what comes out of my mouth. And um, thanks. With that, I will pass. Thank you, Melissa, for your clear, no-nonsense share. Great uh, clarity, simple and no-nonsense terms. Thank you. Thanks to all the panelists this morning for sharing your experience and helping bring up a variety of aspects of discerning our allergic foods and behaviors. Very much appreciate your share, shares and experience this morning. The share ID for this presentation, 16,958. That's 16958. We'll get... uh, contact information for our panelists at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. But we will now transition to question and answer segment. You can pose a question to our panelists by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. 
Harley H. Harley H. Freya H. Freya H. Felicia P. Alicia P. Felicia P. Felicia. Pedro B. Pedro. That's you. Dana P. Dana P. Anyone else in this round? Pete. Gotcha. Okay, on this list, perhaps I missed one or two. Harley H., Freya H., Felicia, I believe, Pedro, Dana P., and Pete B. Okay. Um, A broader question, you know, because more general might be more helpful than very specific food-oriented questions. But let's start with Harley H., please. Go ahead, Harley. Hi, this is, uh, my name is actually Carly H. With Thank you for the correction. Sure. Uh, hi, this is Carly, um, Carly H. from Connecticut. Um, I appreciate all the um, speakers, and I don't exactly have a question, but more of a comment for Melissa. Um, I love the, the concept of look-alike foods. Um, I actually have never heard it that you know spoken of that way um carly we reserve this time for questions right so what so the is it is sort of a question the when you look at something like oven fried chicken which is i mean how do you know that it's a red light food before you've eaten it That's the question. Yeah, you know what? I can begin. Thanks, Carla. That's a great question. I can begin to feel an excitement about. You know that sensation is so elusive. I have had the sensation, the hit before the before I've even taken the bite. Crazy thing. I've had like, I've had that experience with food in my shopping cart, I'm already feeling that rush of excitement. If you're thinking about it, and what I would suggest to you, put it down because you've mentioned a specific thing, right? You were the one who mentioned it, so therefore it's rolling around in your brain. And if you think it's a problem, it's a problem, right? And even if it's not, so what, right? If it's it's a possibility, there's plenty of other things you can eat. You can eat chicken prepared in another way, right? It's just food. Thanks. <laughs> With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Carly. Next up, Freya H. Thank you. This is Freya H. in Colorado. Um, thanks to all of the panelists for a great, great presentation this morning. And one thing that Allison said um, sparked a question for me. She talked about um, the, the fact that this is a progressive illness, and that's why I need to continue um, to report and my, my food to a sponsor. And my, um, I, I feel like I've heard different things about that. That you know, some people 
after, you know, having some solid abstinence for a while, do not feel the need to report it anymore or their sponsors don't ask them to report it anymore. So that is a practice that I um, have always appreciated doing and I've never felt the need to stop doing it. So I'm just curious if any of the panelists um, have any comments about that, you know, whether whether they ask their sponsees to um, to report their food and or, you know, if they reach a point where they don't or they leave their sponsee. So I hope that's clear. Thank you. Any panelists like to respond to Freya's question? This is Allison L. I'll respond to that. Please do. Thank you for the question, Freya. And I've yeah, I've already stated what I need to do. Um, and I ask my sponsees to do what I do. I don't ask them to do anything I don't do myself. Um, and um, I can only share my experience, strength, and hope, which was that um, I need to continue to commit my food and be. Um, accountable and honest and open um, I don't I don't you know at this point in time see a point where I'll be able to just do what I want with my food even if it's a plan I've committed to God um, and not another person I don't I don't see that that will be my path um, but that's what I know today in my experience I'll pass thank you Allison any other comments from panelists I'll just add to that. This is Jason K. It's um, I personally report if I eat anything outside of my food plan, that's a green light food. But I know my food plan every day. It's the same exact thing, weighed and measured. And um, I am honest with people if, you know, if I feel a little hungry and I eat, you know, some extra green light foods that are safe foods for me, I report that just out of uh, an accountability system, um, but those aren't things that are triggers for me. And what I do with sponsees is after they've had a spiritual awakening, I ask them to kind of pray and try to seek guidance and see what they need to support them for their sobriety and for their abstinence. And I work with sponsees individually to see what level of accountability that they need um, because I think for me, keeping the individuality in mind is, you know, some people do struggle and get triggered by volume and want to sneak more. Some people are restrictors. They want to weigh less and, 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 you know, restrict, and that could be that could be a trigger for them. So I work with each one individually to discern what they need. Thanks. Thank you. Of course, like Melissa, go ahead. Thanks. thanks. Yeah, so... I would say, first of all, I commit my food every single day. I need accountability because the disease, you know, is progressive. And um, and what I also think, you know, we're told this is a form of insanity, what we have. And, you know, one of the most dangerous things that happens to anybody with mental illness is when they feel good, they stop taking their medication. And this is part of my medication. If it got me recovered, then it's what I do to remain recovered. Um, thanks. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thanks, Freya, for the question. Felicia, you're next with a question. Hi, good morning. I'm Felicia S. from New Jersey. Thank you all for your service today. Um, this is for any of the panelists. Um, I'm newer in abstinence. I've done the steps, and I'm just at about four months. What I want to know is 
I struggle. I have a huge yellow light list. And what I guess I'm trying to understand or hear from all of you is, and I've talked to my sponsor about this, is that everything for me feels like a, a yellow light. Have any have any of you experienced that feeling with what most people would think is a green light food? That's the question. And if so, what have you done about it? Thank you. Who would like to respond? Yeah, Melissa. Sorry, I feel like. Um, so I'll just share with you. There are. So I'm going to say a specific. Right here's a specific food: sweet potato. Right. I know so many people who <clears throat> can eat it, and I can't. I just can't. My my particular list of green foods is really small, but there's plenty of things for me to eat. There's three meals a day. Right. Um, yeah, I would say if it, it, you know. Yes, in a group like what you said, yes, my yellow light list was very, 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 very long, and it really was all red. Anything that I'm trying to control, um, I'm getting in the ring with something that's a problem. And so long as you've got, you know, and I, and I would say also this is the importance of having measurements, you know, portions, because um, that could help you as well. Thanks. Thank you, Melissa, for your comments. Any other panelists want to respond? I would like to, if I can. This is Michael M. Oh, Michael, I'm sure I'm sure you have very wonderful things to say, but this is just limited to the panelists responding okay. to the questions. Thank you, Thank though. You. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, panelists, uh, Jason K. or Allison, did you want to respond, or shall we move on? I typically don't deal with yellow light. Okay. Yeah, so I will. Okay, very good. Okay. So let's move on to our next question. Thank you, uh, Felicia, for your question. And Pedro is up next. Good morning. Can I be heard? I hear you. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I um, I don't know how to describe this feeling of uh, listening to you people. I'm just so grateful to to have been here present to hear those panelists share their experience, strength, and hope, their recovery. I'm, I'm like, wow, incredible. So my question is to all of the panels, panelists. How, what kind of action did you take in the beginning and to maintain this level of recovery to get to this incredible recovery that I feel my heart you guys have? How, what kind of action did you start and continue? Because, you know, in the big book it says that our hope as an alcoholic is to uh, maintain and grow a spiritual experience. So obviously, you know, I, I'm getting this that uh, I need to continue growing 
I can't stop. If I do, the disease will grow and knock me down. So my question is, what kind of actions, how did you manage to get to this level of, of your recovery? This is Jason. I can speak to that briefly. Please do, Jason. Um, Pedro, there's no secret formula. This is the power of God and spiritual awakening. And for me, once I have experienced that, um, I don't want to go back. There's just such power and depth and richness and beauty in that. And uh, the only things that I've done are written in the big book, and that's why we study that um, volume and that text um, very specifically. Uh, there's no mystery to it, no secret formula. I do some outside things, but every outside thing I do has a very clear relationship and link to the spiritual principles outlined in the big book. Uh, so maybe a disappointing answer, uh, but that's what I'd have to say. This is Allison. I'll speak to that. Thank you, Jason. Um, Go ahead, Allison. Thank you. Um, yes, beautiful question. And um, I just want to take the opportunity to stress how important the tools are um, in order to even remain abstinent long enough to work the steps so that I could have a spiritual awakening. I had to rely on the tools day by day. Um, prayer and meditation is amazing, but that alone did not uh, enable me to stay abstinent in order to work the steps. I had to call people. I had to share vulnerably um, and honestly. Um, I had to listen to meetings. I still listen to meetings every day. Um, I do service. Um, I, I think of others. Um, I would send cards to people, just thanking them for their um, part in my life and think of others in ways that allowed me to not think of myself long enough to remain abstinent. And then I just continued those same things. And, um, you know, maybe I don't listen to meetings all day long like I had to the first several months, um, but I do daily. And so then it um, it shifts and grows and changes over time. Um, and I, I learned that through those who've gone before me, what they do, what their experience is. Um, and I'm always pushing myself to do the next thing that makes me uncomfortable. I still make calls every day. Um, and my challenge right now is to call some people who have um, more experience um, in recovery than I do and push myself to reach out to people maybe that I haven't talked to before. Um, so there's always a growing edge that gets me closer to God. Um, so, yeah, I just want to take the opportunity to say um, the tools really help with working the steps and remaining abstinent. I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro, for your question. Next up. Dana P. Thank you. Good morning, Dana P. Here, um, <clears throat> Leah, Allison, Jason, Melissa. Brilliant, brilliant. I really enjoyed uh, your uh, your shares this morning. My question is around behaviors. Um, if any of you have experience with um, exercising and/or over-exercising, how that relates to the phenomenon of craving, uh, if you, any of you could speak on that topic this morning. Thank you. Which panelists would like to jump in on that?
Allison, Jason, Melissa, any experience with exercise and it uh, this being is Jason. a trigger? I'll, I'll speak, speak to mm-hmm. it a little bit. Um, I went through periods of pretty compulsive exercise, uh, and it, it it was something that was an important part of my attempts to um, to kind of get control. It never worked, um, but I have worked closely with people who the the you know when you talk to them, they're talking about I want to exercise for this amount of time and I want to get you know get my intake down to this much, and they're talking about being dizzy and you know like not having um, sanity around exercise. And just like I'll come up with a food plan and I'll I'll support people to come up with a food plan, I help to talk to them to come up with the same exercise plan. Um, so it's just I think that's how I look at it and that's how I try to help people with that. Does this phenomenon of exercising create this mental um, chatter like Melissa talked about earlier? Does it bounce around in your head? Do you think about the next day when you get to ne- exercise next? Just like when I talk about food, as I'm eating the first bite of something, I'm thinking when I can do it again. Am I going to my exercise class thinking about when's the next one and can I make sure I get in six or seven this week? Um, thankfully, I don't struggle with that, but I have dealt with people who do, and that's how I have to think about it. So I hope that's helpful. Thank you very much for your question, Dana P. Next up, PP. Thanks, Leah. Uh, PB, Compulsible Reader, Recovered Today by God's Grace and Mercy. Thanks for the panel, for uh, for everything. That was that was uh, re- really good. I really appreciate it. I'm curious just to get your perspective. Uh, you've, everybody pretty much referenced the doctor's opinion. It says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. So I'm just curious, what, what is... What is the, is the fact that food provides me a sense of ease and comfort the injurious part of it, or is the fact that it causes the phenomenon of craving the, 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 the injurious part of it? Hey, Pete, I'll, I'll tackle that one. Good to hear a fellow Pennsylvanian, if that's a word. I think what you speak of to me speaks to um, both aspects of the disease. The phenomenon of craving is that physical allergy for me and uh this ease and comfort for me is the is that sense of release that i get uh from the spiritual malady that restless irritability and discontent feeling um that feeling of being disconnected separate and apart from and not connected to people uh is that uh the ease and comfort for me is the effect of food that that has on me. It gives me that temporary release from self. It gets me outside of myself. It gives me these intense, pleasurable sensations and uh, that sense of ease and comfort where I can finally feel like I can take a deep breath and feel comfortable in my own skin and I can kind of face the world and and I don't want to run and hide away and I don't feel fully controlled by fear. And then once I uh, access that effect, uh, that physical allergy takes in, and I go on that roller coaster ride. Um, but that is a it is a very interesting quote that Dr. Silkwork makes, and I, uh, I I've never heard that question in quite that way. So I hope that is helpful. 
Thank you. Jason, any other panelists want to add their thoughts on that? Yeah, this definitely. Oh, go ahead, Melissa. Oh. Melissa, go ahead, and then Allison. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Pete, for that question. So, um, you know, I think using food for ease and comfort is is like pretty normal, right, like normal people, which is why, like, you know, you give a kid a lollipop when they go to the doctor. Um, you know, it's what you used to get when you got a shot because it is like, but but I can't. And so the injurious aspect of it isn't just the the phenomenon of craving that develops, you know, yes, of course, that that injurious. But using food, you know, in a way other than nutrition for someone like me is is dangerous as well. So even though, like I said before, broccoli isn't my alcoholic food, right, I don't have a problem with broccoli, if I have a really rough day at work and I say I'm going to come home and eat a heaping bowl of broccoli, you know, rather than um, – then, like, truly, like, bring my problems through through the 10-step process or through, you know, prayer and meditation, um, that is injurious. That That is part of it, to, to use food, um, because I'm a distinct entity, so I can't use food in ways other than nutrition. And that doesn't mean I don't like my food, but I can't use my food um, as any kind of a drug. Thanks. Good question. Thanks, Melissa. Allison, you would like to add to it as well? Um, my response is actually pretty similar to Melissa's, so I will go ahead and pass. Okay, very good. Pete, thanks for your question. We have time for maybe two more questions. Who else has a question? Star one to unmute. Fran. Donna D. Donna, and did I hear a Fran? Jessica S. Okay, we have time for two more questions. So let's go with uh, Donna and then France, please. Hi, this is Donna. Can you hear me? I hear you. Okay, thanks. Uh, thank you to the panelists for your service. I, as it's been very informative and helpful and thought provoking. Donna, we lost you. Star one to unmute, please. Hi, I'm back. Sorry about that. Um, I struggle with two areas with the food plan. One is celebratory, when I've had a really good accomplishment or day. And, you know, I, I think in my past, it's been celebration with food. And the other is vacations, both areas where I seem to like mentally lose the discipline of my food plan. And I'm just wondering what your experience in, in staying true to your food plan is in those situations. Thanks. Thank you. Panelists? This is Allison. I'll share on that. Please do. Yes, I understand that was a part of my life as well, and I'm currently living in a situation that feels a lot like a vacation, and there's all kinds of, you know, restaurants and things around here that I've never experienced before, and that used to be what I would do on vacation is try new things, let myself go. Um, but my food plan and the way that I look at what I eat now has shifted. Um, I think Melissa said, you know, it's not recreation, it's not entertainment, 
And I, I have that same kind of perspective. I had to tell myself that in the beginning, and now it starts to become true for me. Um, so I don't have those same inclinations to do what I used to do. Uh, my food and what I eat is a prescription plan for my um, illness. And so if I were to go on vacation, I wouldn't suddenly start stop taking the medication I needed to stay alive. So I don't alter the amounts. I don't alter the types of foods. I, I just continue to do what I do when I'm home so that I can continue to remain sane and connected to God, no matter my location, no matter the events in my life. And nobody needs to understand what I do except for me, and no one needs to support what I do except for me. If my husband doesn't understand it, that's okay. I have to take care of myself and stay alive. Um, and that's my what I can do, and I have the support of the fellowship who does understand for that. So I'll pass. Thank you, Allison. Anyone else want to comment on celebrations and vacations? Yeah, I definitely. I, first of all, like, amen, Allison. That's pretty much what I would say. Um, when I go away, I bring food with me. Like, you know, this is this is – think about us. We're alcoholics with food. Nobody would say – well, you're on vacation, alcoholic, go ahead and have a drink. I mean, so if if having a, a structured food plan is part of how I remain food sober and abstinent, I have that no matter what. And I don't go to restaurants and occasions without knowing precisely what I'm going to eat when I'm there. And I look at it, you know, this is a deadly allergy, and if my kids were deadly allergic to peanuts, I wouldn't worry about offending the hostess of an event and asking exactly what's in the food. And if I didn't trust that it wasn't, you know, going to be free of, of peanuts for my kids if they had that allergy, then I would take care of their, their food. And I do the same thing for myself. And and I do it, you know, um, no one else is, like, uh, bothered, really. by it. My food is so uninteresting to my family because I don't make it um, – I don't, I don't, they can do whatever they like. They can eat whatever they like. I'm happy about it for them. Um, I don't do it begrudgingly, but I just need to take care of myself regardless of where I am. Um, this is very serious for us. So thanks. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Donna, for your question. Our final question for the morning comes from France N., Good morning. Thank you, everyone, for your service. This um, podcast was wonderful. Um, I'm just going to take a second to ask God to speak for me because I'm very nervous when I speak. Um, my question is about the process of putting the alcoholic ingredients down. Um, I know for myself, you know, each time I put something down, I thought that was it. Oh, good. That's it. Well, this past week, I've had the opportunity to say the set-aside prayer about a million times, and I say that with a warm heart. Um, so what, I, what I'm asking is, are there any powerful experiences that would help us, and the newcomers included, that you have gone through that um, really helped you um, open your eyes and be more accepting of going through with that, putting it down? And um, I'll stop with that. Thank you. Thank you, France, for your question. I'll just speak to that real quick, Jason Kay. Um, for me, it's 
the experience of almost dying in the food of of the untenability, I think we have to think about our first step. When the first step it becomes crystal clear, there's no messing around with the food. There's no, is this going to be easy or hard or, you know, am I going to get uncomfortable? For me, it was something broke inside of me and I just could not go on living the way I was living. And I became absolutely willing to go to any length. So I, when I see people and they're in that hemming and hauling kind of place, I circle back to first step considerations and see if they understand the, the gravity of this illness. And once that hits home and we get that in our gut and our bones, you know, it's what, what, what do I need to give up? It doesn't matter. Like I'm willing a hundred percent. It's not even a question. Um, so just, I don't know if that helps kind of shift your thinking or if that's kind of helpful to consider that. Thank you, Jason. Anybody else want to share from the panelists? This is Allison. I'll, I want to speak mm-hmm. to that. Um, I think the experience that um, that helped me be willing to continue putting down anything is the experience of the obsession being removed and living life in such a way that I didn't know was possible. Um, now, before I had that experience, the pain of the food and the way I was living drove me to be willing. And then what gave me hope that there was something, even though I hadn't experienced yet, it yet, that there was some other way to live that was worth putting all those things down no matter what, um, was the hope I heard in others. I could hear recovery in others. And they didn't sound um, like I felt, but they told stories of feeling like I felt. And I had to believe um, that it could happen for me too because they said it would. And I, if I did what they did, which was put these things down and work the steps, that I could have that too. And so um, that hope and the misery I had experienced, I, I, I knew um, what I would get if I continued to not be willing to put anything and everything down as needed. I knew what that would get me, and I didn't want that anymore. So I kept working towards the hope of something new and different and free that I heard others promise. Um, and then once I began to experience that for myself, um, I don't ever want to go back. So I remain willing to continue putting down anything that would stand in the way of my connection to the higher power that I have and know today. I'll pass. Thank you, France and for that question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you to our panelists, Allison L., Jason K., and Melissa C., for your wonderful shares this morning, your personal experience with great clarity and so helpful and powerful discussing allergy of the body and the identification of those substances which trigger the phenomenon of craving for us so very important. Thank you for your service. The share ID for this morning's presentation, 16,958. That's 16958. And we'll close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. 
see to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.